the beauty of entrepreneurship is is the opportunity to figure it out for yourself. I'm Coulter DeVries, owner of Ranch Investor Advisory and Brokerage Services. I'm an accredited land consultant with the Realtor Land Institute and proud member of ASFMRA. The Ranch Investor Podcast is the most downloaded and informative industry-specific content that intrigues while entertains. Thanks for coming on the Ranch Investor Podcast. I'm gonna I'm gonna give your introduction. We've got today we have Scott Clary coming on. Scott is an entrepreneur, an investor, author, and podcaster. Over your career, uh, it sounds like you have sold and marketed to the most iconic Fortune 500 and Fortune 100 brands. Scott, I understand that your thought leadership has been featured in over 100 news sites and publications. You speak globally at industry conferences that I want to hear more about as we get into this. And you've had articles, again, I want to hear more about this, featured in Forbes, Wall Street Journal, Hacker Noon, The Startup, and a few others. I think this is going to be a good episode for all my broker, agent, list, uh, listeners out there, and then lots of entrepreneurs, Scott. Mm-hmm. We we have people calling in who are like me. They're They're trying to figure out how to syndicate ranches using fractional ownership co-ownership models, uh, crowdfunding, you know, there's a, there's a thousand ways to skin this cat per se. And there's a lot of entrepreneurs listening in. So I'm excited to have them tune in because you're also the founder and CEO of the social club, which is a highly vetted private members community of entrepreneurs, investors, and executives. And of course you have your own podcast, the success story. I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs there too. <laughs> you talk to a lot of entrepreneurs. Uh, it's, it's, I mean, that's how we found you. Um, it's one of the top 10 business podcasts with over 321,000 subscribers. You have a, a entrepreneur business newsletter with over 313,000 readers. Man, that's a lot to cover. 22 million downloads, hundreds <laughs> of thousands of followers on social media. Let's get started, you Scott. Want. What's Let's your get story? Started. How did you how did you accomplish this? Oh, Where did it time, start? time, time and 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 work is usually the answer to most problems. I mean, none of this is something that you do over, you know, a short period. It's something that you have to show up every day and similar to building a business, a personal brand, an audience, a community. Um, whether or not you want to be a successful investor, whether or not you want to be a successful capital allocator operator, um, it's all about time. It's about I'm very I'm very bullish on the concept that if you commit ten to fifteen years to anything, and you learn from your mistakes and you incorporate feedback loops into what's worked and what's not, and you iterate and you potentially pivot when things aren't going so well, but at least you continue to consistently learn. I do believe that eventually you will end up some version of success at that thing. And a podcast, a newsletter, a social audience, a, a great portfolio, it's no different, really, at the end of the day. It's consistently showing up and learning for a period of time and executing. And then eventually, like I said, 10 to 15 years later, you will have some version of it figured out. How about in your experience and the people you network with, what do they, how do they stay disciplined, not chasing shiny objects or he who chases two rabbits catches neither? Because as an entrepreneur, you're, 
you're just the wheels are always turning and you're you see an opportunity everywhere you go so how do you stay focused so first of all i don't think that it's easy i think that every entrepreneur succumbs to shiny object syndrome at some point and i think they succumb to it repeatedly i think that I think that you do have to obviously focus on what's urgent and important and what's going to be mission critical and moving the needle in your business or with your portfolio or with your investment. Or if you have a thesis, like Ranch Investor is a highly specific investment thesis. That's great. So now you aren't you aren't distracted by investing in early stage SaaS startups. So you're not trying to do a, a private equity play for like a, a dental office roll up or you're not putting whatever it is. You have a very specific thesis. So I think that you understand what the the North Star metric is that you have to achieve and that you you urgent and important the ta you focus on urgent and important tasks that lead you to that outcome. Um but I want I I said that it's not easy because everybody succumbs to it. Like it's not like there's some secret recipe that over the course of your career you will never try something new that doesn't work out or you'll never be distracted by something that seems highly lucrative. I really do believe that you just have that North Star that you keep coming back to again and again and again. And you, it, it takes a lot of, it takes a lot of, I, I would say, what's the word I'm thinking of? It takes a lot of self-discipline to, to focus on that thing that you know will actually yield the end result. I think that it becomes easier to have that self-discipline when you, like I said, originally you mentally commit to that thing for a long term because then you're okay with it not working out right away. And sort of as, you know, even as I'm speaking through this, I'm just thinking about what causes, what causes um, that shiny object syndrome. And I think what causes the shiny object syndrome is when the results that you want don't manifest immediately enough because you have not in mentally prepared yourself for the time required to actually achieve those results. Realistic time frame has not been set. So then you focus on something that in your mind you think could accomplish those goals a little bit quicker than the thing that you're already trying to do. And that's what distracts you. Because I think that shiny object syndrome would be less of a concern if you with 100% certainty could say, for example, I'm starting a business. This is the one product I'm gonna sell. This is the one market I wanna sell into. And I know that it's going to achieve 10 million, 50 million, $100 million in top line in 10, 15, 20 years. If that was a certainty, I think shiny object would be less of a problem. But because it's not a certainty and because expectations are not properly set, we don't set our own expectations properly in terms of what we actually have to do, the work that we have to do to get to where we want to go. I think that's when shiny object syndrome starts to manifest and it starts to like creep in. And you're like, oh, I've been working on this for three years. It's not where I want it to be. Maybe I can try this new shiny thing that looks a little bit more exciting because it sounds like it could take way less time, but ultimately you're just starting your new cycle with something brand new. That's probably gonna take another 10, 15 years. So yeah, I think that it's, it's hard. It's hard, but I think it's about being real with how difficult and how long it's going to take us to achieve what we want to achieve, which is fine because long is very subjective. Like 10, 15 years, it sounds like a long time, but in the grand scheme of things in life, it's actually not that long. So are we actually committing to the journey that we want to sign up for? Are we, are we committing to some, you know, get rich quick version of entrepreneurship, which isn't accurate and not true. And I think that's where the shiny object syndrome comes from. So I think it's maybe about setting the right expectations for what we're going to take on.
it seems like a lot of people are chasing AI. That every pitch out there <laughs> yes. now includes some form of AI. And they, they think to raise investment, you have to have some feature of AI. Is does that does that seem accurate that now people are just using that to to sell their core model? Like, oh, we're not marketable unless we're doing AI. Well, this is not so different than crypto. This is not, this is, this is the, the exact same thing. So this is what happens when you have like a trend. So it's very dangerous, right? It's, it's because there's going to be a lot of well-meaning entrepreneurs that can use the trend to go raise money for that particular, for that particular company, crypto, AI, whatever it is, it could be, it could be cannabis. It could be solar. Like there's all these trends, right? So it's exciting to build in a trend because there's a lot of momentum. When there's momentum, investors want to invest in these trends uh, because they don't want to miss out. There's FOMO. So you can, you can, if you if you want to build a company in a trend, it's 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 a little bit easier because you will find money a little bit easier than if you're building something that doesn't have FOMO around it. Not to say you can't obviously raise money for a boring business, it's not topical, but I mean, the issue becomes now there's good actors and bad actors that take advantage of the fact that investors are excited about a trend. And then like in crypto, like with AI, you'll have people that have absolute business building a crypto or an AI company. And then people that have no business building a crypto or an AI company. So people that are genuinely building a company in the space that that is going to disrupt, it's going to change the way that we, you know, operate, live our lives, do business, and it's truly revolutionary, good for them. And if they have the, you know, if they have the cognitive abilities and the and the pedigree and the background and the proficiency to build, good for them. But the issue is when, like you said, somebody who has no business building an AI company puts like a dot AI or, you know, includes some AI component just to raise money. I don't think that's ethical. And I don't think it's needed. And I actually think it's a distraction. I think that if people were more confident raising money against their thesis, and their actual business, then that's what they should do. And they think that it's gonna be easier to raise money because they include an AI component. They could maybe get a couple more investor meetings that way, but then ultimately you're gonna be distracting your, you're gonna be distracting yourself from building the actual product. Because if your product was not good before you added an AI component, unless it's radically different, it's still gonna be a shitty product with like an AI marketing spin. So that doesn't really solve for what you're actually trying to solve for. And what's going to happen is you're going to have a hard time taking that product to market and you're going to have a hard time finding customers for your product because the products you stand alone with or without AI. And then you're going to have a hard time delivering returns to your investors. And it's actually going to be a very shitty experience for everyone involved. So I think that it's very short-sighted to add AI as a component onto your business when your business has no business being an AI company, similar to when people were like tokenizing everything as part of their business and their business really just had no reason to be tokenized. And I think that some entrepreneurs are first time entrepreneurs could be slightly short-sighted and, and not understand how building a company in a space that they have no business playing in is not going to be a very positive experience. Like it's already stressful enough, but add on the stress of not delivering returns to investors and having to consist like like constantly explain why you're adding on this almost just like uh this like gimmicky feature into your business um it's not a business that i personally want to build it would be too much stress for me 
I like staying grounded in like what I actually want to build and the audience that I actually serve. And if, if that isn't getting traction, then that's a business problem. That's a product problem. And I can fix that, but it's not by adding on some bullshit component to, to what I'm trying to take to market. It sounds like if I'm going to summarize some of that, sounds like your minimum viable product has to be market ready and you have to yes. have product market fit. And then right. you have to have a beta test proof of concept and you have to have this feedback rather than creating novel solutions in an ivory tower that mm -hmm. seem marketable. Why don't we just find out what works at the least cost to begin with and improve upon that? Cause it seems like these guys who blitz scale and let's say SaaS products and even you even see it with, well, especially with marketplaces, because marketplaces are non-proprietary. So you have to cash flow, or sorry, you have to blitz scale because cash flow isn't really an option. It's about gaining. It's about blitz gaining. scaling is another share. issue. Blitz scaling is a bigger, is, is a separate issue than leveraging like a trending, like a trending topic to raise money. Blitz scaling, you could be like, I could be like a consumer focused B2C SaaS product and never be profitable and raise, keep raising rounds at incredible, incredible valuations, exceptionally high valuations. I mean, you saw this with like, I think WeWork is probably the most notable blitz scaling failure where you marketed it as a software company. It's a real estate play, but the valuations kept, you know, replicating software valuations, which allowed them to raise like billions and billions and billions and billions. And then obviously we know how that story played out. So, but I don't, I don't think, I don't think many companies and I don't think many VCs really enjoy blitz scaling a company anymore. I think that was, I think that's a little bit of um, an outdated play. I think that company investors, excuse me, they want cash flow. They want to see that you're profitable. They want to see that you have a product again, MVP or otherwise that resident resonates with an ideal customer profile. A certain market solves a viable pain point. And it's a difficult balance. Like, are we trying to build a profitable company? Are we trying to build something that is highly disruptive and, and has never been done before? I mean, there's there's a lot of nuance to to this conversation, but I mean, yes, done improperly, blitz scaling is also a huge issue. Because well, for, for it seems reasons. like it. Well, and you take in all that VC money, and it seems yeah. like it forces you to throw something against the wall and see if it sticks. That yes. I've, I've I've been watching this with some, uh, what are we going to call them? FinTech company. They start as FinTech and then. Oh, the payment processor. What was it? Bolt? Or what was the one? There was one. Bolt or. And they 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 blitz scaled and then they went bankrupt. It was like two years ago. It was one sort of competitor to Stripe. I can't remember which one it was. And if it wasn't Bolt, then I'm sorry for Bolt. But it was one of, there was like two companies that scaled way too fast. And it was all FinTech. But yeah. And then did they try to launch other products that, Hey, we've got to do something with all this VC money. We've got to get these 30% returns. I can't remember if they expanded their product portfolio. I think they tripled down on their primary offering. They, they had an $11 billion valuation at their last raise. And there was some, like their revenues were just like, it was like a couple hundred thousand dollars a month. Like it was so out of like, that is the epitome of blitzscaling. Like somehow the story was worth $11 billion. But if you actually looked at under the hood, revenues, I don't even think were a million dollars a month, which obviously does not lead to an 11. It's a, listen, you have a couple hundred thousand dollars in revenue per month. Great starter company, but it's not, it's not an $11 billion company. So 
that is the epitome of the issues with blitz scaling. And I think, I don't think many VCs like to do that anymore because there's been so many issues and so many people have lost so much money. Well, and just um, to be forthright and candid with you, Scott, I am bootstrapping ranch investor mm -hmm. and for many, many reasons, but I believe it's up to me to prove the right product, product market fit, mm -hmm. have it beta tested, um, have a good case that cash flows. And if it doesn't cash flow, that's on me. That's, that's all coming 100%. out of my pocket. And you become a better entrepreneur by building a cash flowing, even profitable business. Like it's not as easy, but you figure out all the shit you have to figure out at a very early stage. And this is why I love bootstrapping because then you don't take on the pressure. You don't take on the, the pressure to blitzscale or to hyperscale. You build it at your own pace. You know what's working and what's not. And you continuously optimize and you focus on profitability versus just customer acquisition, which I actually think is a really sound business concept to focus on. I mean, after my last company was acquired, I, I dabbled in private equity. And by that, I really just mean I was doing some small, I was spinning up SPVs, doing small acquis uh, small acquisitions of like majority stake in, in smaller like e-com and CPG and, and like online businesses. But I mean, in the private equity world, like it's it's all cash flow. It's all based on cash flow. You look at the historicals, you look at the profitability, you look at basically the last five, 10 years of business and then some, and that's how you make your decision. And I, I was thinking about as somebody with a tiny bit of money, do I want to, you know, start to angel invest or do I want to contribute to like a venture capital fund or do I want to raise a VC fund or raise a private equity fund or dabble in private equity, whatever it is. But um, for me, it just made a lot more sense to, to hedge my bets on companies that had cash flow, that had profitability. And I think that VC has been um VC has been made to seem a lot sexier than it is. And I think that that's I think that people are starting to come to terms with maybe throwing money into things that have no product market fit or no viability is probably not the best thing, except if I understand that industry. If I, if I came from that industry and I understand that industry, maybe I can figure out if it's the right team, right product, and there's a good chance. And I can offer some, maybe some guidance, some mentorship if they're fumbling a little bit. But I think too many people throw money into VC without really knowing the industry or the product or the risk factor involved, um, which is why I love bootstrapping. Because I think it's smart yeah. and it's healthy yeah, and, and it for removes me, stress off you. Well, and I... I, I feel a strong sense of duty to the LPs, the yeah. the investors, passive investors. And if you, if I am going to be VC backed, then then I would owe the VCs priority on their returns over the That's LPs. And you can't true. serve two gods. That's also true. And That's I've I've watched true. this with other online syndication platforms and it seems like they took all this vc money the actual product were, were the lps that they were getting to their online syndication platform yeah. so those lps were the product it wasn't the real estate and then you take in all this money and you, and you find out well we can't really scale this to the returns the vcs need so we're going to shift from prop tech to fintech and from fintech to real estate tech and and from real estate tech to map tech and it's just 
it, it seems like again chasing shiny objects or throwing something against the wall see if it sticks it's to me i want to stick to my core beliefs and values and it's mm-hmm. got to work for the long term and it's got to work for me personally and all, another fact that we didn't even consider or speak about is when you do take on vested interest vcs who are committed to these hyper aggressive growth goals the other person that loses is the customers so as the customers would be the tenants the customers would be your if if you're in real estate um if customers could be actual customers if you have like a product company or service company customers lose customer experience suffers um a lot of a lot of venture capital firms grow at all costs and that that could also be employees suffer like there's like a lot of people a lot of people end up suffering right when it's growth at all costs absolutely you can still make and 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 not not having growth at all costs does not mean you don't make money you can make a lot of money in private equity you can make a lot of money with lps over vcs but it's just about i think that silicon valley ruined ruined a lot of it because before that i don't think there was there was leveraged growth which is a different issue in traditional private equity world but it wasn't like growth at all costs so there's always listen whenever there's money invested there's always good actors bad actors you just got to make sure you're with the right people that's all that matters and it seems like we are trending away from those those mega valuations and capital raising for for series a and seed rounds and angel rounds and even series bcs that those are getting more and more difficult so now you took in all this money over the last four years and you got to do a series c and it's it's harder to accomplish or you're gonna or you're gonna fold (laughs) you're right you're you're 100 right i think i think that if if you're just taking money from lps and you're scaling and and you're scaling that way, I think it's a healthier way. I mean, this is literally why I moved away from angel slash VC and, and moved towards private equity. It's I think we think very similarly. So I also took money, LP money on some of the deals, but it wasn't like growth at all costs. It was, these are the expectations. This is the projected P&L. This is what we're going to stick to. This is the return we're, we're going to aim for, but we're not trying to build this $10 million company into a billion dollar company. We'll get good returns, but it's not going to be a billion dollar company. So. And, and in my world, rural America, um, salt of the earth, cowboys, yeah. ranchers, farmers, flyover state Americans, I come in and if I pitch syndication of ranches or some, some might call it fractional ownership, mm-hmm. um, it's really just a direct participation program, not unlike any other DPP, real estate DPP. Yeah. But to them, what they hear is Wall Street. You're going to come in with the suits <laughs> and you're going to monetize what we have and you're going to export, you're going to squeeze out all these profits and export it to wall street. So that's a huge pushback to where there are, you mentioned stakeholders and one of, one of the community meetings I was at in central Montana, stakeholders got brought up and they said, well, what's your plan for wildlife management? And how are you going to manage biological risk? Because what you're doing, you might incentivize more elk. It, it could be in your best interest that the elk population triples around your ranch because that's more hunts you get to sell, more placements, more LPs you're going to bring in. On the other hand, someone said, but it also might be scorched earth. You might bring in a bunch of Texans and Floridans who just 
kill everything that moves and it drastically eliminates the the elk population in that local area so these stakeholders of different sides of the argument are asking me what's my plan and i'm saying this is my plan talk to you guys and listen and it's not by the way it's not exclusive to like your niche right so i have a a good friend who does dental office roll-ups and that's very popular by the way you'll you'll buy you know 10 dental offices at a you know million to two million dollars each and then roll them all up, you sell them out of multiple, it's like a traditional roll up. But DSOs are, are dental office roll ups, dental services, uh, roll ups are very, very popular. I'm not actually sure why they became so popular, probably because uh, there was a huge opportunity there. And they, you know, it's owner operated, there's a play that can be repeated. But um, I, I do know that uh, the big concern now is private equity firms doing these DSOs or other similar types of roll-ups and basically ruining the culture of the company, laying off all the team, like cutting massive amounts of costs, like basically deconstructing the business. So now, after a while of like bad behavior in a market, you'll have owner-operator like dentists, they, they no longer want to even entertain or speak with somebody who's doing this, even if, even if that person is a good business owner, a good leader, a, an ethical private equity or fund manager that actually would be a huge value add to the patients, to the employees and, and and improve things versus just cut costs, fire here, fire there, you know, basically destroy the patient experience, whatever it is that could in theory, like make the business more profitable. So there's good actors, bad actors. And similar to you, you have a different set of problems and pain points that the investors thinking or the, the seller is thinking about. And I think you just have to address those and understand that like, if you're going to be somebody who is buying these, these groupings of businesses, as opposed to just thinking about it through your lens as an investor, what is the pain point that the seller or the current operator or owner actually cares about? And then not just thinking about it in terms of, oh, I'm going to include it as part of the sales strategy. Like, how do I make a profitable business or holding company or strategy that actually fulfills the needs and requirements and worries and pain points of the potential seller. So it's not just lip service, like you're actually thinking, okay, so this is now part of my playbook. I, I don't know much about, I don't know much about ranches, but the, all those, all those problems make a lot of sense. So how do I actually address them so that I don't make people have sellers regret when they actually sell to me because sellers regret ends up being my reputation as an investor. And I, I can maybe do one deal and maybe lie my way through that deal, but I can guarantee you won't do a second one or a third one and you'll have a horrible reputation. So reputation means a lot in this game as well, especially because you're doing like a, again, like a, it, it's, it's a real estate play, but it also sounds a lot like a private equity play to a degree. So I think reputation means a lot. So you can't just go in there like Wall Street because that's what they're worried that you're going to do. So you, you, you lead with, how is this going to improve the environment, the ecosystem, the the lives of the animals and the people that work for the ranches? How do you how do you lead with that? Because that's what people care about. Because you're doing business with people, and I think sometimes people forget that, and they think they're doing business just with like spreadsheets and numbers, but you're doing business with like actual people. So that's always important. I mean, that's what makes a good real estate investor versus a bad one. Like when they when they take over a building is or they they buy they buy a, a sixplex or a multiplex or even like a, a single family home, is the life of the individual that lives in that home better after you've come in 
or is it worse? And I think the people, I think I'm very bullish on the future of ethical capitalism. I, I, that's, that's what I believe will, will win because I think that that creates reputation. I think people want to do business with people that improve their lives. It's a very common sense to me, but I think that it's lost on some. So that, that makes me think about, uh, one of my clients. So I, I can say this without being too specific, but one of my clients is, um, uh, let's see how specific I want to be here. Yeah. We can, we can redact <laughs> the names after so you don't get in trouble. <laughs> um, it is a religious organization that's very, very conservative, mm -hmm. and it's it's very um, unique. It's a novel religious organization. It seems to be closed off from the outside world, okay. and they've I can been guess who it is, but I won't say. Okay, so, <laughs> <laughs> but I have tremendously enjoyed working for them. They come in with an attitude when they enter a new area. They say, they've said this several times, it's got to work for everyone because a lot of times when they enter an area, they drive up values and then the locals feel priced out and they bring in competing businesses and those other local services products feel undercut and um, undervalued because this, this religious sect, this group has a very good brand premium for the products they create and the services mm -hmm. they do. Their brand reputation is exceptional, so they are competitive in the areas that they market, but they they have never once come in and said, we're going to undercut everyone, we're going to negotiate hard and get this seller down as as much as we can, and we're going to we're going to um, steamroll the county commissioners to get what we want for zoning and regulation. They've never done it. They keep saying it's got to work for everyone. We're here for the long term, whether whether we do good or bad. There's going to be people that don't like us just because we're here. Mm -hmm. Of course. So we have to um, kind of keep in mind to a high degree this this reputation. And I just really admire working with them because they they think holistically in that regard. But that's that is that's what they lead with as an investor. They lead with. Like there's there, the, the self-awareness is obvious, which is great. Like they understand the environment they're going to go into and they're not ignorant. They're like people are going to hate us regardless, but whatever. Yeah. Like, let's just, people will always hate you, by the way, yes. regardless of what you try and do. It doesn't matter if you're investing or you're, 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 you're selling a product or you're building an audience. Like there will always be people that don't love what you do. But if you're coming from a place of I'm, doing the best I can and trying to impact the the most amount of people in a positive way. And you're, you're aware of how to do that as effectively as possible. I think that's a great place to operate from as a professional, as an entrepreneur, as an investor, whatever. Well, let's, let's take a tangent here in the, the last part of our episode and tell me more about some of your speaking engagements and your, your exclusive groups. I mean, you've been, you pitched how to sell anything in 2023, building a business from zero to a hundred million. I do um, a lot of entrepreneurship stuff. So I like were, working with entrepreneurs. How did, right? how did you get invited to the Real Housewives of Miami? <laughs> <laughs> Listen, um, I think that, well, I mean, that was, that, that's through, that's through building a brand and, and in a city and, and network, networking and putting yourself out there. And so the podcast has been a massive, networking play right the podcast lets me sit down with some of the most incredible people in the world 
uh, it is something that I think has absolutely changed my career. And a lot of, a lot of like the things that you just mentioned. So I spoke at just more recently inbound, it's a massive conference put on by HubSpot. My podcast is sponsored by HubSpot. Um, I've spoken at other events as well, but that was the most recent out of Boston. I think like 30,000 people go to that one. Um, the, the invitation to the, the real housewives of Miami premiere, all that stuff is putting yourself out there, connecting with the right people, like speaking about the things that you know and you care about. And when you repeatedly do that and show up and speak about the stuff that you're doing, working on, care about, know about on social media for a period of time, like you do build a community around yourself. And when you build a community, that's when people are interested in learning more about you and inviting you to speak on certain subjects. And I mean, I, I, I've worked in startups, I've worked for startups, I've mentored startups, advised startups. So it's a lot of like startup. That's most of the topics that I speak about, how to start from scratch, how to build, how to go raise money, how to, you know, find your first 50 customers, how to, what's a, what's an MVP, um, how to, whatever. Well, all you marketing were, sales, all that you stuff. Were, you were shitting on Bitcoin earlier. And are are you not a Bitcoin billionaire in Miami? I'm not a Bitcoin billionaire in Miami. <laughs> I'm not a bit. I don't shit on Bitcoin. I shit on people that have no biz. I'm bullish on entrepreneurs that, that are building products that actually solve problems. And there's a lot of Bitcoin crypto people that, that do solve problems, but there's a lot that don't as well. So I think that I'm bullish on people that actually understand the problem that they're solving and build solutions around that problem and work on that for five to 10 years. Not somebody that leverages hype and FOMO to build an unsustainable company. Um, so no, I'm not a, I'm not a Miami. <laughs> I'm not a Miami Bitcoin billionaire. If I was, maybe I wouldn't be, I'd still be podcasting. That's a lie. I like doing it too much, but. <laughs> well, and we were, we're talking about your, the success story podcast and yeah. the, the involvement you have with the entrepreneurial community of advising, consulting, investing, yeah. you're, you're, you're deeply in with them. Why didn't you just go the route of being a McKenzie consultant? Why not McKenzie? Oh. <laughs> so you want me to, you want me to shit on Bitcoin and McKenzie in one podcast? <laughs> it's, no. It is very common for the entrepreneur community to shit on McKenzie, but let's hear your, let's hear your side. Well, they serve a purpose, right? They serve a purpose. I think that the beauty of entrepreneurship is, is the opportunity to figure it out for yourself. And when you figure it out for yourself, you become a different level of, of effective and dangerous in the game of business. And I think that outsource, so my career success has been based on me figuring it out first and then hiring people based on the things that I've already figured out. I think that when you, I think that agencies, firms, larger ones, especially even smaller ones in the entrepreneurial ecosystem, sometimes there's a little bit of a predatory aspect because the rates that they charge and the promises that they commit to can completely destroy startups again and again, and not, not McKinsey. I've actually, I've never worked with McKinsey. I've worked with, I mean, there's only four, so I've worked with other ones, but, <laughs> but I mean, I've seen startups pay $50,000 per month retainers pre-revenue, uh, with consulting firms. I've seen 50 to $75,000 for a pitch deck 
proving out market viability for a product that has no market viability or, or not that it has no market viability, but it, it, they'll tell you whatever you want to hear is the best way. And that's not useful as somebody starting. That's not useful at any level in business, but it hurts more when you're just starting a business because the difference between a fortune 100 using a top four and getting bad advice or even good advice, but most sometimes bad advice is that it won't bankrupt a, a fortune 100, but it could stop an entrepreneur from figuring out or even being able financially to take a product to market. So I am bullish on figuring shit out yourself on not outsourcing your thinking on not raising too much money on trying to find your first 50 customers um, on if you're not a technical person, finding a technical co-founder that can help build you uh, your product. So there's a lot of ways to do it. And I don't find that agencies or consulting groups are a good way to start because I've had more bad experiences with them than good. They do good work, but not all the time. And it can be really, really detrimental. Well, now, now it makes perfect sense to me why McKenzie consultants become CEOs of fortune 500 companies and politicians. They tell you what you want to hear and then they bankrupt you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it takes a certain kind a fortune 500 CEO and a politician, very few of them, not all, but very few of them will have what it takes to build a company from scratch and keep it, keep, make it profitable and keep it in business for 10 years. That is a very certain skill set. And by the way, a startup CEO founder is not always the person to run a Fortune 500 company. So I think that sometimes there's a disconnect. There's a disconnect in, and people look, when you're, when you're building something from scratch, especially the first time, you look for anybody who in theory could make it easier, but sometimes you latch onto the wrong people or the wrong support or the wrong services. And it actually just, stresses you financially, or it gives you bad advice based on where you are in the market. And I don't think that as a startup founder, you should look anywhere else other than you figuring it out yourself to a degree. You have, you have, a, you have your mentors and you have your advisors and you have your co-founders, whatever. But I think a large portion of people that started did a lot of figuring this stuff out themselves before they started spending $50,000 on a pitch deck. Well, I, I hope the board, of, the board of Disney is listening to this and I recommend they go find Travis Kulanik and see if he can replace Bob Iger. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's actually really interesting when you see somebody who is a, a hardcore operator going to a corporate. I mean, like, look at this is what Elon is. Elon's an operator. Elon builds stuff from scratch and Elon can build repeated things from scratch. He, he could jump into pick a pick a pick a category, pick a niche, pick an industry. He could build something in that industry because after you've done it once, you can start to you can you understand what it will take to get there. And it's not so it's it's not complicated work, it's just hard work. But I would be very interesting to see. I also think that government would be better if there was more entrepreneurs in government. I, I oh, genuinely sure. believe that. Oh, I think sure. people that can figure shit out and aren't just great speakers, but are great doers and are highly critical thinkers. Um, I think that makes for better government too. But that's yeah, I don't want to go into government because it's just, it's more stress than you need. Like who wants to do you're, that? Because you're man. constantly being berated by the constituency. Of course. And of course. the entrepreneur is not used to that. The entrepreneur is kind of like some of my ranching clients who are 65, never married, no children, have been in rural America on the ranch their whole life, bachelors. 
they do not know how to interact with other people. Yeah, I mean, they're good at what they they're good at what they know. It's unfortunate because some people would be better and they would lead they'd lead the country in a better direction. But I mean, if you're not comfortable taking up that mantle and doing that job, it's not it's not easy. Your life is under scrutiny, a lot of public pressure. It's not fun. I mean, look at look at the I'm trying to think of uh, yeah, the Mike Bloomberg. He ran, he didn't do so well. Obviously, Trump's very entrepreneurial. He's very, very um, uh, polarizing, but a very entrepreneurial person. But not many other entrepreneurs. Vivek. Vivek. I, actually, I like Vivek. I like Vivek. I had him on my show a while back. I don't mind him. He's very smart. Biotech, right? Yeah. But uh, he's another entrepreneur. But some, um, of this, some of this discussion reminds me of a conversation I was having with my attorneys who were drafting the PPM and the LP agreement and... <laughs> The structure. So you've got the S Corp, right? The holding entity that rolls up from the SPV yeah. and the management LLC. You know the structure. Yeah. And so we're we're figuring out the term sheet and how do you monetize recreation on a ranch? How do you mm. how do you provide that benefit? Well, property right. When it's when it's on a ranch, it's a property right, but when it becomes part of an uh, SPV, it's it's more of a feature and a benefit. And how do you allocate that so that it's not a timeshare? And my attorneys were saying, "Geez, Coulter, this is this is some risk. This is some liability. We we've never seen anything like this. This is pretty tough to do. Are you sure? Let's just go the conventional, normal route, and you you lease out the hunting, lease out the recreation, and that's the best way to do it. Don't offer it to the LPs." Um, if they're going to invest in your PPM, it's because of the cash flows and the risk-adjusted return. So don't dangle this carrot of they can they can access the ranch because it's just too hard. And I go, well, guys, here's my story. As a kid on a ranch, growing up on a, in a ranching family, there were never any SOPs. There was never any formal training, <laughs> no onboarding, and everything we did if I, if I did it just slightly wrong, my grandpa and my dad would scream at us brothers. Yeah. God damn it. Just figure it out. Just 100%. figure it out. That's and... a quote, by the way, there's no SOPs on a ranch. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I told the attorneys, I said, I've just got this. I've got this belief that we can just figure it out. And, and it's in the back of my head. I'm being, being screamed at. Well, God damn it. Just figure it out. Coulter. You know what? And and I love it. By the way, I I love I love when you sort of break the mold on something too. It's a very entrepreneurial mindset. I think it's important. But I think you can figure it out. I mean, yeah, fine, some liabilities, but not not insane liabilities. Not not beyond. I mean, people are people are shooting people into space. I'm sure you can figure out your liabilities for having people on a ranch. <laughs> right. I'm sure. I'm sure it's fine. I'm sure there's some disclaimer you can get them to sign. It's not. It's not gonna not gonna be the end of you, but I mean, yeah, disrupt the experience a bit. That's what creates create novel experiences. That's also what's fun about entrepreneurship. You create things that haven't been created before, or you give people access to a lifestyle or an experience that they normally couldn't have had or they didn't think was possible. Something that was so normal for you. I love it. Well, I, I think the listeners are loving hearing this from you, Scott, and they're gonna feel inspired to learn more. Where where can they find you and best best see more of your work? Um, if you want to go to the web, the website has all the social. So it's Scott D Clary, C L A R Y.com or 
I got all the same tags on social, which is pretty, pretty fun. So it's at Scott D. Clary. And they can check out the podcast, check out more content like this. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. Well, Scott Clary, the Success Story Podcast. Thanks for coming on the Ranch Investor Podcast and sharing your experience. Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. Click subscribe on your streaming platform so you know when the latest episode has dropped. Be the source of knowledge and the maven that other professionals are excited to refer.